Why don't you guys give a big round of applause for your host, the incredible Greg Bruce! Thank you so much. Good evening. Hello. Welcome once again. The Greg Proofs Film Club climbs so high and reaches so low to dazzle you once again with the celluloid splashings uh, screened across uh, uh, the Ethernet and the interweb and all points in between so that once again we can all receive the pulsing beacon that is the cinematic excellence that we try to uphold here. This is a separate and brand new uh, podcast from the smartest man in the world podcast. However, it bears two painful similarities. One, I'm the host of both, and two, we've been doing them both for about three fucking years. So it's not like a cat jumped out of a bag and everyone went, wow, this really reinvented broadcasting. Another movie podcast? Fucking original. Uh, who would have thought of combining talking with movies? And, uh, so, but it's been excellent, and thank you for the reception it's gotten. Thank you for coming out tonight. I appreciate it. I had a feeling this one would be good, and tonight, by the way, so let's get the hee-haw over with. Tonight, uh, is, uh, we're screening the um, 1998 uh, American New Wave classic <laughs> by Wes Anderson, uh, the most salient of his, uh, or the most salingent of his post-salinger uh, malaise, uh, uh, the most piquant of all the prawn salads that he would serve us over the years in an endive cup. Um, and and it's, it's uh, Rushmore, starring, uh, yeah, fuck yeah, starring Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, Olivia Williams, uh, Brian Cox, and a, a plethora of faces that will, you will uh, take to your heart and bring home with you in a gravy boat that you make in class. Uh, this is a movie that uh, does a thousand things, but reminds you of a million more things. And I think that's what makes it uh, Proustian in its uh, uh, inadvertent scope, if you will. There's a, uh, a, a salience to everything that Wes Anderson talks about and all the emotional notes he touches, as well as all of the scenes that he sets, that if you went to school in America any time between 1895 and last year, it seems fucking like it's just about you. Uh, he's picked a bizarre injured period that he does in so many movies where somewhere between 1967 and 1984, shit clammed together uh, and created a mustache that was disconcerting uh, or a suit that's a little too weird and shiny and shit. Uh, and the music, of course, never goes with what's going on. And that's what makes it awesome beyond measure. Uh, it's all... British invasion in this, and uh, all you can say is that the anger and the deceit and the treachery in this movie are amplified and echoed by all of the music in it, which is a, a unbelievably gratifying emotional experience. Uh, it's like uh, going to the beach and the waves are extra loud. Um, <laughs> that one hit hard. Uh, <laughs> But enough about me. Um, thank you, that was a joke. But of course, we're here on the 
flattened baseball cap tennis shoe district of Los Angeles, <laughs> pretending that cinema of any quality is an issue to the phone-driven Eloy of today who are about to face their demise at the hands of the Morlocks as soon as Rod Taylor fails in his quest to save them from that giant underground. Or rather, I enjoy the Guy Pierce, uh, Jeremy Irons one, of course, because... When Guy Pierce finally sees the Chief Morlock, who's played by Jeremy Irons, who's got a spine on his back. Remember that? Uh, there's two kinds of aliens, or, or aliens uh, here on Earth. One has a spine on their forehead, the other a spine on their back. And I don't mean in their back, I mean on their back, like an extra spine going the other way to remind you that bones are icky. And, and shouldn't be seen, that's why they're inside. People have bones sticking out of their head and whatnot. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's unsettling uh, at best. And it's horrible at norms. Uh, you know, this district, uh, uh, we're holding out, we're holding the line here. Uh, there's the new Beverly around the corner, and, uh, 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 which is uh, showing you only live twice tonight, my wife noticed. And by the way, I happen to love You Only Live Twice. It's the one where he goes to Japan. And to make James Bond even more awesomely 60s and show you that the end of the uh, line for white guys was nigh even then, he gets an operation to make his eyes look more Japanese. So he's a tall, balding Scottish guy with hemi Japanese makeup on. It is good! Nancy Sinatra sings the theme song, and it is, uh, yeah, there, fucking game over. Right? I rolled the dice and you came up new. No. Go home. Uh, it's the one that goes. And then always in a James Bond movie, a spear gun. Why? Spear guns seem ineffective to me and inaccurate. I mean, if I had to pick one weapon in a life and death confrontation, I'm thinking shillelagh. You know what I mean? Let's go surefire. Let's make it happen. Brad, you know, brass knuckles like Mickey Rourke in any number of movies. But uh, a spear gun? What if a, what if a tuna queers the shot? What if, what if there's an errant... Yeah, what if there's an errant current or an eel fucking sets something in motion? You know what I mean? There's a billion variables in the sea. That's why when, uh, a lot of times when you get seafood, uh, it's in a can. Because uh, it can fucking, you know, Melville you. The next thing you know, you're clinging to a fucking Ritz cracker in your kitchen because it was big and it was ugly and there was no way to contain the fucker. It had to be chopped up and put into a small tin just so you could fucking deal with it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. When was the last time you were at a fucking supermarket and a whole fucking tuna jumped out at you and shit? They're huge and they're disgusting because animals are scary. And you know why? Because they don't live in apartments. They have no idea of responsibility at all. They don't have to pay for where they live. They don't have to see their boss every day. Animals fucking toil not, neither do they spin and shit. But they're living in the natural world following their instincts. Fuck you. So does water. You know what I mean? How, when was the last time you borrowed money from a, a lynx? You know what I mean? They're not that handy. When was the last time a deer helped you move? Whatever. If everyone's going to be all fucking sissy boots and shit about it. The subject of hand, of course, is film. And uh, 
tonight's show will be no different, really. Um, I, I think that uh, what I was getting at is this. There's a familiarity to the um, repetition and uh, uh, stratification and, and uh, edumacation that goes down in this picture. And it reminds me of a lot of other pictures, obviously. I'm not the first person to posit that J.D. Salinger and, and Hal Ashby come to mind immediately when you think of Wes Anderson. But really lots of other... I mean, when you think of like French movies from the 60s and also... Uh, he, he, he's the king of the slow-mo, right? If, if the, the, there's a couple sequences tonight when the, when the film slows down, it's better than you could possibly imagine. Like, he's, he really is the master of slow-mo. And that's a, outside of 1973, there's no time you'll hear anyone use that phrase. Uh, when slow-mo was invented when I was a kid, they would show it on, like, uh, Monday Night Football or whatnot. Uh, I'll explain what Monday Night Football is. Sports are something that happens... <laughs> When you're not playing World of Warcraft and watching Game of Thrones and touching yourself and shit, there's a whole world out there, you guys. And in that world is a world of white guys. And they're big, ugly, icky white guys. And they run the world and shit from giant tables that they have in rooms in New York City and places like that. And uh, they're often named Jerry, and they're very unfeeling. Uh, They have many homes, and they simply don't care what happens to a good deal of the population. But they're making decisions about a lot of things here. And uh, one of them is that there's a, a sports leagues... Uh, you've read about them in uh, graphic novels. You've seen them on... Um, uh, you probably saw the, the chick from Friday Night Lights in a, in a Maxim magazine. You were looking over a, 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 a ROTC cadet's shoulder at the bus station. I know what's on baby's mind. So, like, uh, there's that. Because... He reflects, you know, like, for instance, my wife and I were discussing it uh, in the sled on the way over uh, to the screener tonight, right? Like, we goes, uh, a cat was on a bicycle in front of us. A person was on a bicycle in front of us. A small cat was on a bicycle, on a very small catsicle. And it was so cute. They talk about kittens riding wild. I mean... To see a cat out there on its own riding a fucking pedaled vehicle with a chain on it, the danger of the fur getting entangled in the wheels, almost eminent. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a heedless cat that throws pussy to the wind like that and just fucking lays down the law and shit. It was a pussy bike riot, in my opinion. It was deep. And uh, so, but the, uh, you know, and the cat's ringing the bell. And it had a fucking awesome, you know, little horn. That was Cat Scotch Fever by Ted Nugent, ladies and gentlemen. That's, I don't know if you know this, but it's Cat's favorite song. It's the, it's the national anthem of Cat's. They voted again in the 80s. And that one took precedence. Hmm. Maybe you've forgotten some of Ted Nugent's lyrics. If you have, let me just bring a couple back for you. <laughs> Ain't nothing dangerous. I feel no pain. It's like a choo-choo train. <laughs> you know you got it when you, you're going insane. Uh, yeah. And then later, Ted actually did all these things. Which is, I felt like the song was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, it was a self-cleaning cat uh, scratch fever container situation. Um, for those of you who have your hands behind your head, this isn't your fucking house. 
this is a place of learning and reverence. And you're going to do two things right now. Uh, no. So uh, it's like, so we're driving over here. And this cat is on his bicycle. And he's got his helmet and whatnot. Which I, like. I mean, I know it's safety. And I, people should, you, you know what? If you're a little child and you're listening to this in your blanket fort in your house in Muncie, Indiana, and your parents are uh, strict, uh, you know, um, Bible types or God botherers, as they say. And uh, the only thing you have in your life is, is this film cast that you watch uh, surreptitiously using your uh, iPhone or your, uh, no, you live in the Midwest, so it'd be like one of those weird ones that you see on TV that you're like, who buys those? Um, Smindle brand. It has every smart app. You can watch 60s things and play musums. Uh Look at the size of it. Where does the water go in? Um, the steam-powered iSnab 5 for the Kansas region. Thank you. One person, everyone else. I don't get it. Why? Why? Um, so anyways, uh, uh, he doesn't... Uh, he, he, he signals, right? He's wearing a helmet and whatnot. But he signals because he's turning right. And he did this one, which is the fucking correct. I'll do it for you backwards. Because it's the back bikes. You wanna... <laughs> that means left, and that means stop. Right. If you took the class that I took. <laughs> Up means right. I'm making a right turn. That does not mean fucking Jan and Dean are about to appear. It means... Yes, Jan and Dean. Uh, perhaps you're not familiar with the greatest driver's ed safety song of all time. Dead Man's Curve. That starts with a French horn that's a clarion call for teenagers everywhere to pull their shit together and not Sheila Booth the place. That's how they sang. Late last night. It was really fucking tangy. Everything's through the nose, man. It's like, what if the Beach Boys were a nostril and a striped shirt? And then the spoken word part, the car. Boom! Fucking deadly crash. Harp struck. Bring. Last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve. I saw the jag slide. In. I'm turning into Matthew McConaughey from True Detective. <laughs> they warned us not to go down there. <laughs> you couldn't tell Marty anything. He was going to do what he wanted. So there we were with our backs to the wall and there was no expiration date, baby. You want to run along? Give me a little drink there. You want to hustle that up there? The last thing I remember, Doc, we started to swerve. We saw the Jag slide into the curve. He, I don't think he says we. I'm doing it as if he's the king of France in the 1800s. <laughs> he's a teenager in the 60s in L.A. He goes up Doheny and hits Dead Man's Curve, and the Jag slides into the curb. And then he goes, I don't think I'll ever forget that terrible sight. I guess I found out that night 
that everyone was right. And then, the, then Jan and Dean intoned shriekily, Won't come back from Dead Man's Curve. It was a warning song to teenagers to slow the fuck down. I don't think it did any good at all, and that's what made it awesome. It was like Leader of the Pack. Leader of the Pack was supposed to warn slutty girls who looked like Cher with big ratty hair and had gum and beauty marks and were smoking and shit um, to not date fucking hard guys and get on the bike with them because they die and shit. And instead, I think it had, where the fuck is everybody going? I'm in the middle of some of the most salient film commentary since Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael made a quiche together in 74. I'd like to know where fucking Goddard just got up and went to. Sweet fucking Maria. So we had to take driver's ed when I was, I went to school in the 70s. The 70s, how fucking old are you? Here's the answer to that. One, fuck, and two, whatever. I'm old enough to know more than you. Let me put it that way. Then how come you're sitting behind a desk with a cardboard cat drinking on a fucking Tuesday and shit? Because it's Monday. (laughs) The the last thing I remember, we started to sort of... We had to take a, a, a bicycle class or something. Maybe more of a clinic, really. More of an ad hoc, come as you are, credit, no credit, what the heck. You know, some moments were serious. If the teacher sat on the desk and their thigh fat bunched and their tie scooched down into the thigh fat region and they had bad facial hair, you knew that it was the 70s and that something bad was going to happen. But on the other hand, if they tossed their head back and a projector was brought into the room, any kind, even the overhead, uh, any kind of projector, at least you knew for a while the lights would be turned out and you would no longer have to focus on anything that was going on. You could draw on your desk. You could touch yourself. You could make a pig out of an eraser. You could uh, uh, chew on a pencil like I did till all the paint came off in your mouth and then decide whether to swallow it or not. Film, films and film strips were fucking rocking good news uh, in my day. And then later videos, uh, which were giant, unceremonious cassettes uh, that went chunk, like they were the elevator in Alien with Sigourney Weaver. Put her down, you bitch. Hurry, 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 goddammit. That's what the fucking cassette deck sounded like when we first started watching it. We watched a David Wolper series called The Ascent of Man or some... I'm mixing two series, but who cares, really? David Wolper uh, was a documentarian, and uh, he made this series about, like, cave people and whatnot. And then he made this other awesome one that I've never seen before or since. And tell me this wasn't a good fucking idea, especially for the 70s. Um, David Wolper made a series of historical documentaries where they did it reality TV style, this was in the 70s. So they go like, Nazareth, 
It's a dusty little town here in Israel. <laughs> Something terrible is about to happen today. What you see, but what you what you see behind me? Yeah, they really did. And then they'd interview people and shit, and they go, "Oh yeah, I know Jesus. He's been preaching around here for fucking weeks." It was it was, it was like it was like uh, uh, you know uh, Duck Golden Dynasty or whatever. It was you know. He did it, and then there was one with Cortez, I remember. I remember them when they were riding the conquistadors into Mexico and the camera falling down the hillside and then the big massacre of the Aztecs in the town square and, and them talking about it. There was a Hitler one. There was one. What was that movie with Tom Cruise? What was it called? Where, Where Eagles Rest? What was the name of the one? You know, he had a... He, uh, I, I am... Valkyrie. I am a homosexual illusion from a Wagner song. <laughs> The closet in here is far too small. Um, that was an awesome movie. <laughs> David Walper did one about him too. Count von Stauffenberg, I believe his name was. And uh, yeah, there was. Um, so we watched those in class. I didn't. I know what I look like, and I know what I sound like. I I, I am, of course, almost devastatingly handsome, and a lot of the women in the crowd are going to need uh, a damp cloth. The point is this. Uh, a lot of people think I worked in the AV department when I was little. I did not. Uh, I was simply a fan like all y'all. But I did dig it when they'd bring in um, cans of film. Not just one can of film. That was a 20-minute, right? You learned how long a reel was immediately. We were like silent movie buffs inadvertently in the 60s and 70s. The number of tins, if the tin was this big, Fucking five minute or if it was this big, fucking woo, yeah. If it was a shitload of cans that they had to change over and over, which took changing because we didn't have two fucking uh, cameras in motion in a fucking sixth grade class in San Carlos in 1970 or whatever up at Heather School. Uh, Heather School. Oh, yeah, I went to a gay Scottish school. <laughs> oh, where the mighty Heather Colts and most of us are kind of dolts. Oh, gosh, our Scottish heritage was everywhere. Mm. In any case, uh, no, that was how you knew it was going to be a good day at school. And then occasionally they'd show a movie. And then when we got to high school, uh, we were allowed to... I was in a hippie class called Elios. And in the hippie class, um, you could make your own major. And sometimes you taught your own classes. So me and my friend Tom Matoni taught a film class. We knew nothing of film. Um, but they gave us a catalog and we were like, fuck yeah. And we picked, uh, uh, not at the opera, um, Dr. Strangelove, uh, the general with Buster Keaton. Um, fucking, I'm trying to remember what the four or five films we picked. And so every week on Friday, we would show a movie in our class. So everybody took it, not cause there was anything to learn, but exactly. Thank you. One person, one woman started laughing. Everyone else is like, I wonder if Bob Costas' eyes drained yet. <laughs> there was supposed to be transsexual curling tonight. And they were supposed to do a live drainage of Bob Costas' eye between 8 and 8.30 on NBC using the Sochi pipeline that went to the Caspian Sea. And Vladimir Putin was going to ride down the flow in a, in a small single-man bobsled that he had a stick that he sat on the whole way no shirt on and a giant 3CP sign hanging around his neck wearing little bear ears like a girl at a rave (laughs) 
One last word about the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> it's not in this movie. Thank fuck. Was there any more flaccid experience in your life as a child when patriotism was brought into the fore in the classroom in that much sanctioned area of learning where 30 of us sat in a room staring toward Mrs. Hagenberger while she fucking tried to deal? <laughs> if you were like me for the first six or seven years of grade school, you didn't see or hear anything. <laughs> I was like a, a baby tree shrew in grades three through five or whatever. I just, I sat at the front. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> you could have poked me with a stick and fed me a mealworm. I'd have just been like, ar, ar, ar. <laughs> Greg, when did Columbus then? <laughs> I couldn't see. Someone just went in the front. Oh, it's not that sad. Later, I triumphed. <laughs> this world weighs over 5 million pounds and is over 25,000 miles in circumference. And yet I twirl it like a child. That is filthy. Cinefamily. Cinefamily is like visiting your uncle who's got something he wants to show you in a box. I don't like it upstairs. There's bugs and shit. It's the only place we can watch in private. Jeremy Irons in the movie The Time Machine where he plays a Morlock when Guy Pierce finally sees him and he's got a spine on his back. Guy Pierce walks into the room, does a Guy Pierce surprise take. <sighs> and Jeremy Irons looks up with a long-haired wig and goes, "Do I surprise you?" <laughs> I give you Rushmore. What a picture, right? What a picture. <laughs> it's like, uh, here, turn it down a little there. Uh, it's like uh, bringing up Baby or Annie Hall or All About Eve or American Graffiti or uh, Igby Goes Down or uh, Golly, I can think of Harold and Maude. Uh, you know, wow. It's a, and funnier every time I see it. I know I was laughing at some inappropriate points tonight, you guys, but uh, when Dr. Guggenheim has a stroke, that's fucking hilarious. Those are the first words he said in 10 days. It's me, Max. And he opens his eyes. It's Fisher. Oh, come on. You don't get stroke jokes in every movie. Holy cow. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Wes Anderson's second feature. Boom. Sophomore curse lifted. Uh, I really, really think it's one of the great American comedies. I decidedly think it's one of the great American comedies of the last 30 years, but I think of all time. Uh, 
It reminds me of, it has the heart of, uh, 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 what's the one with uh, William Powell and um, Carol Lombard, and he's a homeless person, but he's rich. My and My Man Godfrey, right? Like, it has that kind of oomph. And, uh, uh, well, let's go to you guys, and then we'll fuck off into this good night. I, I don't have a lot of sage stuff to add, and I didn't want to talk about the picture per se before it began. But as it rolled on, I'm sure you couldn't help but agree uh, with every emotional hitch and every juvenile moment of fucking frustration and hatred and pain and love. And uh, when he's being... The key to the movie is um, all the adults in the movie, uh, Miss Cross, uh, Mr. Bloom, um, the Professor uh, or, or you know, Dean Guggenheim or whatever, um, he's equal. At, 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 he's a child by his status in the movie, but at no point do they treat him like he is a kid at any... There's scenes where he's playing tennis with them and shit and rolling with them. When he has meetings with the, with the fucking dean of the university, he's like, let me see some documentation. Like, and everybody's like, okay, like this kid, he's fucking crazy. Um, the stakes are so high. And when we're little, the stakes are always that high. Or when we're teenagers, the stakes are always that high. Every moment is an emotional precipice. But in this movie, it's given full illustration and full vent with uh, uh, amazing, uh, uh, you know, my God. The plays are just like the... They're some of my favorite parts that have ever been in a comedy. Next to the stateroom scene in, uh, 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 in um, uh, uh, Night at the Opera or... or um, him uh, uh, choking his girlfriend in the general or whatever. There's so many comedy moments you can think of. That, and when I say that, I don't mean that the choking was the funny part. It's a, there's a hilarious connotation to this, of course. Um, I, I think the plays in this movie are transcendent. The other thing that makes me laugh so hard is this is when I was in high school. And I don't know how old they are, but they're not old enough to have written Serpico as a fucking play. And when the camera pans over and it's Dirk and he goes, I got something. <laughs> And then later in the Vietnam play, when he has a flamethrower and a fag, and he fucking comes through the jungle and goes, ah! And there's Kong creeping out of the jungle and shit. That is the fucking funniest goddamn fucking sophomore play ever put on. He's a sophomore. He's a sophomore. Rushmore Academy looks like Harvard University. The uh, Grover Cleveland High looks like an East German block, tower block from the Cold War era. Did you notice that? Where the bikes are chained up, it's just white buildings with nothing and it's desolate and shit. That's where his bike is chained up in a communist block. The whole movie was shot in Texas. Can you fucking believe that? It looks like New Jersey or Romania. When he's walking in front of the fucking barbershop and he's standing across the street and he gets out of a taxi, he's the only child in a movie who arrives in a taxi on his own and goes. All right, let's take it. Let's, we'll just discuss it a little and then we'll go. Robbo's got the microphone there. Robbo, you may not recognize him. He shaved his mustache. So, uh, yeah, he's super clean and sexy right now. Really, really more Chris Christopherson and Convoy and a lot less uh, Elliot Gould in Getting Straight. Anybody? This is what we do at the end. If everyone seems like, what the fuck's happening here? I do this every month, and we don't have a date for next month, but we're going to get one. And when we do, I'll announce the movie. What are we going to show, Jennifer? 
We haven't decided yet. But it's going to be fucking rocking good news. I'll tell you that much. Hi, who is it? Hi. Do you know where in Texas? Where are you? What, over here. Over oh, here. I don't know. Dallas or wherever the cock they're from. They're all... Uh, the Wilson brothers all went to school at some academy instead of Wes Anderson. Uh, and and uh, I think they shot it um, there. That's, how's that for vague? Um, I, it might be Dallas. <clears throat> Houston, St. John's Academy. That's right. Uh, they uh, they all went there. I don't think they all graduated. Um, Dick Sean. Huh? Dick Sean. <laughs> Who said Dick Sean? <laughs> don't ever raise your voice to me, bitch. I'll fucking cock slap this whole crowd, and you will know the reason why I am fucking president of the Greg Proops Film Club that I am founder and president of. Oh, did it, Roman? Do you have yourself, Greg? Mm, not that much. I never founded any clubs in school, but I was a dick. Uh, you needn't stand, but I'm, all, I'm totally I'm impressed that you did. No, no, stand. I love this it. This isn't a question. Uh, well, then what the fuck are you doing standing in my theater? I want to hear you talk about it, so I guess I'm going to prompt you. Um, I think this movie has a... Really, Tommy Toon? What other fucking Broadway oh. plays have you directed and shit? Go on, what's your question? Um, for me, this movie has a perfect acting moment for Bill Murray. Oh my God. Which is when uh, Max reveals to him that his dad is a barber. Yeah! He anything. Yes! It's just his look on his face and it says a million things. I guess I would like to hear you talk about Bill Murray's performance in this film. It's the apotheosis. It's the pivotal moment. It's the fulcrum. Before this movie, there was an elephant movie. Before this movie, there was some... There were some dark moments, like, and he's not an easy actor to get to, and he's not an easy actor to categorize. Everybody knew from the very beginning that he had all the depth and roundness and possibilities that any dramatic actor has. Even in Groundhog Day, which I don't think he was having a very good time in his emotional life with, him and Harold Ramis fought incessantly during the picture, but it's a, it's a brilliant picture in the end. And to me, is very much like a, a Frank Capra movie, uh, in so much as there's that, you know, element of hope, dee dee, da da da, and you can read, you know, develop your past. This is the movie that allows him to be the Bill Murray that he's been since 1998, which is the misanthropic, um, the hurt in his eyes. The hurt in his eyes in 10 different scenes in this movie. When he comes out from behind the tree with the cigarette <laughs> and then goes back to pretend that that did not happen. You did not see a 50-year-old millionaire in expensive clothing come out from behind a tree to stalk an elementary school teacher. That didn't happen. And she goes, were you hiding? And he goes, well, I don't want to disrupt the class. Uh, the scene where uh, the, the father's revealed, he doesn't do anything. He looks over, but he only does the corner of his eyes like that and stuff like that. And the scene in the, in the lift, uh, in the elevator in the hospital, when he puts the second tin of, of soda pop in after he's already put the whiskey bottle in, and uh, he goes, uh, well, how are you doing? And he goes, I've been kind of lonely or whatever, and like throws it away. Uh, that was the moment that... It, to me, it's like the Bruce Willis moment in Pulp Fiction where Bruce Willis stopped being an, a straight-up Hudson Hawk douchebag and was allowed to be in other kinds of movies and shit. Uh, for Bill Murray, and I don't think Bill Murray was at the you know, Hudson Hawk level of douchery, but... Uh, since then, you accept him in every indie film and you let him 
uh, be the pained older man with the white beard that he is in so many things. And he's, he's revealing in that regard. Like, he turned into a Hemingway character before our eyes uh, in the second half of his career. And I think that's extraordinary, and I admire him for it enormously. And I also am exhilarated that Wes Anderson uh, gave him this part. My understanding is he made around $9,000. Which isn't a lot of money to someone who got $10 million for doing Ghostbusters 2 or whatever. Uh, uh, he made $9,000 for it. And, and, and it's made, I think it's made him a happier person. I'm so looking forward to uh, the great... I'm going to get the name of the movie wrong. The grand, See, now everyone's getting it wrong too. And that's what I love about movies. Every single person in this room said a different title. It's, I think it's called The Grand Budapest Hotel, but someone went, The Great Hotel, and someone else went, Budapest, and someone else went, Lionel Barrymore, and someone else went, but in my house, we rub balm on each other during the movies, and then someone else went, Deanna Durbin, just for no reason. That's what I love about movies, other than the movement in this theater. Thank you. Uh, I think it's, it, 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 it's, a, it's a fantastic Bill Murray movie. And it's still, if you didn't like Bill Murray before, and I don't know why you wouldn't have, Honestly, if you watch Stripes, you'll laugh your fucking ass off. He is hilarious. Uh, talk about yourself for a bit. I don't... Um, I don't wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something exciting. Come on. Uh, one more and then we'll fuck off. Um, Hi, Robbo. Hi. In contrast to how great... What's your name? My name is Kyle. That is correct. Hi, Kyle. Hi, guys. I'm Greg. Um, In contrast to how great Bill Murray is in that movie, do you think it was a questionable decision to cast Luke Wilson as a fucking doctor that went to Harvard? Oh, I thought that was cute. Uh, And then at the end he goes, and he asked me to wear a tie. Uh, No, I think Luke Wilson does uh, awesome duty as the good-looking regular guy. Uh, Like in the Charlie's Angel franchise in the first picture, Luke Wilson is irreplaceable. There's no one else that could play Cameron Diaz's potential boyfriend in that movie. I can't believe we're discussing this seriously. (laughs) And here's another thing that works in the movie that's unlikely. Olivia Williams had a a real hot little streak there. Her first American big picture is The Postman. And, uh, Postman! (laughs) You better run! Um... Postman might be one of the worst sci-fi movies of all time. Tom Petty appears later in the movie In Rags, which proves against his song that he was lying and that he did have to live like a refugee. There's a scene in Postman where Kevin Costner looks at Olivia Williams and it's a close-up of Kevin Costner and he goes, You're so beautiful. You see the fault in that shot. And, uh, but later, she made this one the next year. And then she made uh, The Sixth Sense. And, uh, and I think she's really uh, fantastic in the movie because uh, her Englishness gives it a, a certain sound that uh, it wouldn't have been uh, uh, the same. When she says at the end, uh, at the very, very end of all of the trauma she's gone through at the hands of these two fucking assholes, she goes, uh, would you like to dance? Yeah. No, there's no every guy in this room. <laughs> I want to dance. This has been the Greg Proofs Film Club. You've been the greatest audience in the world. We'll be back next month with heaven knows what. Thank you for listening. You can download us for free on gregproofs.com or do whatever you will. We have a
Sacha Pants. And every time we're... <laughs> 